Well, let's get started. I'm glad everybody's here. You know, on a day like this, and we'll be an Easter Sunday. Well, we'll start that here in a minute there, guy. Give me a minute. You're getting ahead of me. Just like we talked about, right? Evan's back. I said we, need, we put a few, like, video errors and a few sound errors in there just for old time's sake so Evan could run back there and fix them for us. So if you don't know, Evan used to run the sound of the computer stuff for us. Then he decided to move to Lincoln like a heathen. So that's all right. We'll let it slide this once. But, but anyway, on a day like this, man, when we're talking about um, the power of God, really is what it comes down to. And in the power of God, we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, if Jesus had simply died, we wouldn't be talking about this. There's been a lot of guys that died. You know that Jesus wasn't the only one that died on the cross? I mean, you know for a fact, because there's two next to him, right? I mean, so at least there were three. But I mean, he wasn't the only one. He's just the only one we talk about. Can you name one other person except the two who died on the cross? Eventually. Eventually. But why do we talk about it? Because it wasn't his death. It's His resurrection. It's the power of God. Now there's debates of whether that happened or not. There's a lot of debate about it. Because I don't know about you, but I don't know too many people that died and then came back. So, just so you know, that if one of your loved ones dies and you come to me and say, Hey, you're never going to believe this. They came back to life. Like, they were in the grave and then they came out. I'm going to drive you to the hospital. And we're going to get your head examined. Okay? Because it's not an everyday occurrence, and yet on a day like this, the entire world is celebrating something that's so hotly debated. And with that, you've got to think about this, is that if it wasn't true, why would the apostles risk everything to perpetrate a lie if it wasn't true? And the thing is, it did cost them. It cost them dearly. So watch this little video here. Now we're ready. need 100% participation for this to work. Yeah, everyone's here. All 12, 11, 11 of us. Well, what's the plan? Well, as you know, Jesus is dead. But stick with me, stick with me, okay? Stick with me. I have a plan. We are going to steal his body. <laughs> okay, okay, I'm tracking with you. What's next? And then, we're going to tell the whole world that you rose from the dead. Oh, <laughs> oh, you know I'm in. I love it already. <laughs> all right, classic, classic, then what? And then? We're all going to get brutally murdered. Oh! <laughs> wait, 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 come again, come again. Could you go over that last part real, real quick? Oh, what? We get murdered. What's the problem? Uh, I, I like it. <laughs> I like it. I mean, don't... Don't get me wrong, Pete. I love me a good hoax as much as the next guy, right? Right? Uh, uh, what's in it for us? Do we all get riches, fame, and fortune first, right? No, no, get this. You're going to be hated, persecuted, and reviled for the rest of your life! Oh! Okay, guys. Okay, fellas, 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 fellas. Uh, look, uh, I... I've got to be missing something here, right? Okay? I mean, why on earth would we do this? Can we start over? Oh, okay. We'll start from the beginning. Everybody, for John, the beloved disciple. So, okay. We go down to Jesus' tomb. Sounds good. This is really easy. 
Then we pay off the Roman soldiers that are guarding the tomb with their lives. Why checks out? Why would they do that? Then we somehow roll away the big stone that's in front of the tomb. Obviously, you have to move the rock first. Yeah. And then we steal his body. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess. Then we tell the whole world that he rose from the dead and we get brutally murdered for our troubles! <laughs> Epic break, bro. Peter, you rock! Oh, oh, okay, guys. Okay, and then what? Then we all get killed. Come on. When do we see ourselves become exalted and praised? That's just it. You don't! What? What is happening? Anyone hear what I'm saying? This is the most idiotic plan of all time! Chill out, bro. I mean, do I really have to explain the joke to you? Look, it's that we lie about Jesus' resurrection, and then we all die. How am I supposed to chill out when our heads are getting cut off? Or worse, what is wrong with you guys? Thomas! Okay, look, back me up here. I know you can't be cool with all this. I know you gotta have some doubts. Come on. Doubts? Ellen, no, though, how can it doubt? Okay, okay, you guys have officially lost it, okay? I, I am out of here. I, I'd rather be exiled to a deserted island than spend another minute with you wackos. Have I got some good news for you? Fed to lions, crucified upside down, pierced by spears. Pookie, 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 pookie. Stoned, and I don't mean the devil's lettuce. Stoned, and then clubbed to death. Stoned, and then beheaded, drawn and quartered, tied to train tracks. Beheaded, have you ever heard of a Roman candle? Flayed alive, burned alive, cooked in boiling oil, classic. There's some people believe that's what happened. That they took the body and then they made the whole thing up. And sure, you will like live a lie if you believe it's true, but if you made it up, at some point, somebody is going to break. And yet nobody did. And so what I want to talk about today is the power of God because it's the power of God that obviously raised Jesus from the dead, but it's the power of God that transforms you and I. And I kind of want to walk through that day a little bit of what transpired and what happened. And so we're going to start in Luke chapter 22. We're going to start in verse 39. It says, Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. And when he came to the place, said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, the first thing is, is, well, where did he go? It says he went to Gethsemane. Well, what is that? Well, I've got a picture here for you so you can kind of see what it is, but essentially, it's a graveyard. It's a place for him that he could get away. This is Gethsemane. So he wasn't going to a place to be comforted. I mean, he was going to a place of death. He was going to a place where ancestors were lying. And when you look at this verse, he's, he's sitting here crying out to God. He says, Father, if it's your will, 
take this cup away from me. Now, what cup is he talking about? Because he doesn't say take a cup or take this burden from me. He says take this cup. It's very specific. We see that if we go back and read just a little bit in verse uh, 14. He says, when the hour had come, he sat down with the 12 apostles with him. And then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and he gave thanks and broke it and gave to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So there's a lot of talk about cups, and we often don't get it. But when it comes down to the Passover meal that Jesus was celebrating, there were four cups in the Passover uh, Seder. You have the cup of sanctification, the cup of deliverance, the cup of redemption, and the cup of restoration. And if you've ever been to a Seder meal where they go through these different parts, they're going through and explaining this, and there's a, a prayer that they often pray and whatnot. But in this case, it said it was the cup after supper. So as soon as the meal is done, the next cup is the cup of redemption. And what did Jesus say? This is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this, you do it in remembrance of me. This cup was that I have redeemed Israel with an outstretched arm. He is now setting the world free from the cup of redemption through his blood. So what cup? It's that cup. But look at the verse again. It says in it that he had sweated blood. Now, a lot of people will try to make something of this, but one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that when the apostles were writing down the Gospels, okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these were eyewitness testimonies. They're writing down what they saw. They're writing down what they heard. Now, Luke may or may not have been there directly, but he's getting his information for those who were there because he was setting out a more orderly account. But this was known as a medical condition, known as hematidrosis. It's where such agony is going on that he begins to sweat blood. Now let me ask you something. Do you think they knew what that was back then? They didn't have a clue. They just wrote down what they saw. They wrote down what they heard. And then something crazy happens as we go forward just a little bit in John chapter 18. Now you just saw Peter kind of leading the way in that video and he becomes kind of the leader for the longest time. Eventually Paul seems to kind of uh, uh, take over there but in verse 1 it says when Jesus had spoken these words he went out with the disciples over to the brook where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered and Judas who betrayed him also knew the place for Jesus often met there with the disciples and Judas having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns torches and weapons and Jesus therefore knowing all things that would come upon him went forward and said to them whom are you seeking so here we have the accuser which is Judas coming forth. Now imagine, if you will, Judas has spent every moment, in order to be an apostle and one of these 12 disciples, is you had to be with Jesus from the moment of his baptism up until his death and resurrection, which has not yet happened. So he spent every day with Jesus. And imagine all the things that he saw and all the things that he heard. We know, according to John, that there were many more miracles and things that had taken place with Jesus he said, if I attempt to write it down, there's not enough books in the world that contain it. So we have a small snippet. But Judas turns his back on Jesus, if you will. Judas, we saw get mad when Mary was washing his feet with this expensive spike nard. It was very, very expensive. It was a year's wages. And Jesus gets on to Judas, and he doesn't take it very well. 
And shortly after that is when this takes place. In John chapter 13, verse 2, it says, Now therefore, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world of the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So now we know where this came from. This took place. He was ready. He was getting ready for whatever he was about to do. He had already turned his back on Christ. But now it was getting to the point where it's time to act it out. Now let's go back. John chapter 18. Let's look at this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Catron, where there was a garden when he, enter, uh, when he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with the disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. Now, a detachment of troops, when you see it in the movies, you got like a dozen guys that show up. Maybe 13 guys, like, we'll take care of the 12. We'll have a couple extra laying around in case we need them. A detachment of troops is somewhere between 300 and 600 men. That's a lot of people. Now, why do they need that to capture one man? Well, one of the reasons may be is that Jesus didn't just have 12 disciples. He had thousands of disciples. There are 12 apostles. But those apostles were constantly baptizing people during the life of Jesus. And then it says that they came with lanterns, torches and weapons again if we're coming for one guy it doesn't take a whole lot okay but these lanterns is from the greek word lampas it's just something that would light up a room but torches comes from a different greek word it's phanos and it was this long burning oil lamp it was something that once you lit it if it was full it would last all night long so what does that tell us they're prepared for battle they were dressed for a fight they didn't know what it was going to take, and they didn't know how long it was going to take. But they knew that they needed 300 to 600 men, and they were prepared to do whatever it took to make that happen. Now, verse 5, as we fast forward just here a little bit. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he had said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now you notice the word he is italicized. The reason it's italicized is not originally there. It's not originally there because what he said is, I am. Ego, I me. It's the same words that what Abraham had said. When Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I said to you, before Abraham was, I am. They took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus himself went out of the temple going through the midst of them and so passed by. See, Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees there. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. Ego, I am. It's the exact same thing. It's what God has told, he told Moses. I am. Tell them, I am sent them. But they got mad about it. Well, why are they mad about it? In Exodus 3, we see, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And you should say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. You see, they're mad because this was a statement about God. And Jesus is making that declaration. I am. And look what happened. As they drew back, they fell to the ground. Now, this is the power of God. It seems to have knocked everybody over. 300 to 600 soldiers. When it talks about them falling, it, it, it's, it depicts in the, in the original language some force. It was unexpectedly. It was suddenly. It forcefully knocked them down. And it was like they were dead. They were laying them out. They couldn't move. Now, that's power, y'all. That's power from one statement from Jesus. In verse 7, he says, Then he said to them, Whom are you seeking? 
They said, Jesus, now they said that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. And that saying might be fulfilled, which spoke of those whom you, have given, uh, you gave me. I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. That servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into, de- into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup? There it is again, which my father has given me. So there's good old Peter once again. You can always count on him to do something dumb. Jesus said that, oh, I'm going to die, but three days later, I'm going to come back. No, you're not. We'll be with you. You won't die. I promise. And what's he doing? In a desperate move, he grabs a sword. He cuts off a guy's ear, but he's not just any guy. This guy's name is Malchus. He's the servant of the high priest. Malchus is someone that Peter would be very familiar with. He would stand at the right hand of the high priest. And what Peter did was punishable by death. He took a weapon and essentially removed a body part. But Jesus' reaction was that he grabbed the side of his head and he stuck the ear back on. This is the last recorded miracle before Jesus' death. But what did he do? He got rid of the evidence. That's what he did. Because now they couldn't bring a charge against Peter. And this is an example of the power of God, but there's also a part here that oftentimes gets overlooked. We tend to glaze past it as we're reading these stories in the gospel. And, and, and some of you may have already today and sat down and read this narrative, or may later today sit down and read this. But there's parts that we miss because we're so familiar with the story. And maybe you've never even read the Bible, but you're familiar with the story because you live in America. And at one point or another, it crossed your path. But in Mark chapter 14, verse 43, it says, Immediately... While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And when they laid their hands on him and took him, and one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now I'm going to put a little disclaimer in here just so you know. They say Mark was the scribe of Peter. Now we just read who grabbed the sword and cut off his ear. It was Peter, right? Now look how Mark worded this. And one of those who stood by drew his sword. He didn't call him out by name. He's your boss. You're not going to write that out there like that. Verse 48. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Now how young was this young man? We don't know. But we got our first recorded streaker going on right now. Good thing there wasn't a football game going on. Now a lot of people will try to argue that this is Mark. I doubt it was Mark. Well, some will say that he's trying to add himself into the story. And some will say that it was John and that he has slept and that he just kind of fell out of his clothes and he came running. I don't know if that's ever happened in the history of humanity, but maybe. But what this was here, and we know this by what the language is, is that rich Jewish men, when they would bury their dead, they would bury them in these linen cloths. They came from Egypt. They were very expensive. Only the rich had them, and only those of a certain hierarchy would be able to afford to do that. And there is only one Greek word that describes these cloths. It is a burial shroud, and they are very expensive. There's one other place in the New Testament where this word is used. Mark chapter 15, verse 42. 
Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. And so when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he brought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in the tomb which had been hewn out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jesus observed where he was laying. Now, that word linen is the only other time it's used in the New Testament, and it's the exact same phrasing. What this tells us is that very likely when Jesus said, I am, and the power of God knocked all those men down, it also raised this young boy from the dead. Because there's no reason. This wasn't like Saturday night clothing that you just wore around. Now, all around Gethsemane were these uh, cemeteries. All around there, as I showed you in that picture. And that blast brought him back. But then we get to the part where Jesus stands before Pilate. He's going into an examination. Now, why did he need to be examined? You've got to remember that it says that Jesus was our Passover lamb, the Passover sacrifice. And one of the things that had to happen on the 10th of Nisan, that they would bring the lamb into the household. And it had to be examined for four days. And it had to be examined and looked at. And if there was ever a spot found, or if it, one of the kids was playing with it and tripped and it broke its leg. It could not be a Passover lamb. It had to be without spot. It had to be without blemish. It had to be perfect in all of his ways. And so Pilate, as he's standing there examining, trying to figure out, what do you want me to do with this guy? What does he say? I wash my hands of this. You do with them what you want. You see, there's a lot of things that happened that transpired leading up to the cross. Now, look at Matthew chapter 27, because there's another weird event that takes place. We'll start in verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So Jesus laid down his life. They didn't come take it from him. But it says, From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land. And some will say, Well, this is an eclipse. Well, that would be the longest eclipse in recorded history. But there's history behind this. And there's several guys that have written about an event that took place. You've got a guy named Phlegian. You've got a guy named Thallus. You've got a guy named Africanus. And Thallus wrote the history of Eastern Mediterranean. And he wrote it from the Trojan War on. And it's about AD 52 when he writes this. And he writes about how he quotes Julius Afri Africanus who was a third century historian, but he's quoting all of this stuff taking place, and he's talking about a naturalistic explanation for this darkness. But when you get to Phlegion, who was a Greek historian, this is what he wrote. In the fourth year of the 202nd Olympian, there was the greatest eclipse of the sun, and that it became night in the sixth hour of the day, so that stars even appeared in the heavens. There was a great earthquake in Bithynia, and many things were overturned in Nicaea. Now he's simply writing down what took place. But go forward and you see Africanus and what he wrote. He says, On the whole world they're oppressed 
a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. And the, this darkness, Thallus in the third book of his history, calls, as appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. For the Hebrews celebrate the Passover on the 14th day according to the moon, and the Passover of our Savior falls on the day before the Passover, but an eclipse of the sun takes place only when the moon comes under the sun. And it cannot happen at any other time but in the interval between the first day of the new moon and the last day of the old, that is, at their junction. How then should an eclipse be supposed to happen when the moon is almost diametrically opposite the sun? Let opinion pass, however, let it carry the majority with it, and let this portent of the world be deemed an eclipse of the sun, like others important only to the eye. Phlygian records that in the time of Tiberius Caesar at full moon, there was an eclipse of the sun from the sixth hour to the ninth, manifestly that one of which we speak. But what has an eclipse in common with an earthquake, the rending rocks, and the resurrection of the dead, and so great a per uh, perturbation throughout the universe? Surely no such event as this is recorded for a long period. You see, we try to argue piece by piece, but it is a collection of the whole that matters. Them coming to get him, he says, I am. They all fall down, and apparently a young man raises from the dead. At the moment of his death, the sun goes dark, and the earth quakes, and the rocks rent. Look at this, Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. It says, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the saturnian and those who were with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared greatly, saying, This truly is the Son of God. They were convinced. What does it take to convince somebody? Apparently more than this. Because there were still those who were arguing. You see, we've, ex we've lived through eclipses. Aren't you glad? It's not a moment out of the night of the living dead. I mean, what would you... We'd be locking our doors, hiding. There's so much more to this. When it talks about the veil being torn, the veil was 60 feet long. It was 30 feet wide. And it said it's the thickness of a man's hand, 4 to 5 inches. You can't tear that. But it was torn. It took 300 priests just to lift it up and to move it. It doesn't just happen. See, darkness filled the entire earth. There was a sizable earthquake. When it talks about the rocks were rent, that's this massive movement of these massive rocks in the earth. They were fragmented. And it's possibly because the earth recognized the death of its creator. But if the story ended right there in that moment, it would be full of heroics. It would be full of of angst. It would be full of all sorts of stuff. Jesus being this incredible philosopher. He was a great man that did great things and brought order to the world and took a religious system at that time who had gotten out of order of the Israelites but maybe brought it back to where they were recognizing that they're sinful and maybe there were some things that they needed to change. But this wasn't any ordinary man. This was the Son of God. This was the long-awaited Messiah. This is the Creator stepping into His creation creating a way for mankind to be righteous. This is the story of power. Because Jesus didn't stay in the grave. We don't celebrate His death. We celebrate His resurrection. And Paul makes that very clear in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. It says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which is preached to you, which also you received in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, 
and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and that he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve and after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remaining to the present but some have fallen asleep you see he's talking to the church in Corinth and he says this is the gospel that Jesus died according to the scriptures it's a good story that he was buried according to the scriptures all of that was foretold but the resurrection according to the scriptures and if you don't believe me he appeared to Cephas he appeared to the twelve and then over 500 brethren at once so in other words if you don't want to take my word for it go ask them they'll tell you they saw it they watched him die they watched him live in other words the twelve did not conspire say man have I got an idea guys think about this one that's the argument you see we have tried to whitewash so much of scripture to eliminate the power of God from the equation but the power of God was as real then and it's real today it's the power of God that transforms lives you see Jesus wasn't the only one raised from the dead we see that Lazarus was raised from the dead just as an example but the power of God was on display from the moment that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and that hasn't changed look at verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15 now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead among you means what those in the church of Corinth some are saying there is no resurrection of the dead the Sadducees believe that they didn't believe in the resurrection they didn't believe in angels they didn't believe in the supernatural they only believe what they could see and what they could hear and what they could touch and what they could feel. But look at the argument. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified that God has raised up Christ whom He did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise for if the dead do not rise then Christ is not risen and if Christ is not risen your faith is futile you are still in your sins then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if in this life only we have hope in Christ we are all men of the most pitiable so if Christ didn't rise then you are still in your sins and all of this is for naught it doesn't matter what you do you can't be right with God if you're claiming that the dead come back to life then you have to believe that it's at least possible that Jesus did but if it's impossible then Jesus didn't raise and this is a colorful story and maybe they stole the body and made it up or maybe they had a mass hallucination and they just thought that they saw Jesus and they just thought that they talked to Jesus and they just thought that he was raised to the clouds they just thought that and then they just thought that he said hang out in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high and then they just thought that they reached down to the hand of the man at the beautiful gate and said silver and gold I don't have but what I have is in the name of Jesus rise up and walk and he pulls him up and he walked and he was dreaming it didn't happen because the power of God can't be real if Jesus didn't raise from you see, the cornerstone of our faith is that. Look at verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For by, since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after those who are Christ at his coming. 
Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. That last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him and put all things under him, that God may be all in all. The resurrection, what we celebrate today, is the cornerstone of our faith. Without the resurrection, it's just another colorful story. You can pick any religion you want. It's not, it doesn't matter. You can just believe there's all multiple ways to God. But if Jesus raised from the dead, then what he says goes. Because that is the cornerstone of the mark in history. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 1. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. And that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with and we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, it's the resurrection. It's not a matter of what you can do because we try to put a lot of parameters on it. That if you be a good person or you give money or you get baptized or you take communion or you read your Bible or you go to church or you do any of these other things and these other items that we have put on you and we're like, oh yeah, I'm right with God. God loves me. But it's not about us. It's about Him. It's about what He has done. All of those things are good things, but they don't make you right with God. Those things are done because you become right with God. And there's one way to do that. To confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart. That God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. It's this thing that Jesus talked about with Nicodemus. When Nicodemus comes to him by night and he says, It's obvious that you come from God because nobody can do what you do. Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what are you talking about? And he goes into this long dry diatribe about what it means. And he gets on to Nicodemus of how he should know better because he's a teacher in Israel. But then we get into that famous verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. See, he's not talking about life on this earth. Everlasting life on this earth would be torture. He's talking about spiritual life. You see, he took the keys of death. He conquered the grave. That is the power of God. When he told his disciples he was going to do it, they didn't believe him. The women went to the tomb for no other reason to finish preparing the body. And then he was alive. And so they came back. I said, guys, you're never going to believe it. And guess what? They didn't believe it. 
And they ran and they looked and he wasn't there. And then Jesus appears to Thomas, who didn't believe it. And he gets on to them. I told you I was coming back. You see, we try to do a lot of things. But nothing we do compares to what God has done. How he sent his son in this world to die a death that we rightfully deserve. That whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. In order to know that you're right with God, it's very simple. It's belief in Him. Not belief that He exists. Because James said that the demons believe and they tremble. Believing that God exists doesn't do you any good. Belief in Him means you're putting your trust in Him. That you're recognizing yourself that I do not measure up to God's standard. Because God is the standard of good and therefore no good that I do can ever measure up to that. But the propitiation for those sins has been taken care of by Jesus Himself. And I receive that free gift. All you have to do is ask. He says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's that simple. There's no magic formula. There's no magic prayer. But if you spent your life thinking, maybe I was baptized as a child, therefore I'm right with God, I got news for you. That's not how it works. If you've gone to church your entire life, that's good. That's not how it works only one way. It was proven through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for you. And Lord, I just pray that you are quickening hearts right now to receive you. That all we have to do is ask, Lord Jesus, that I am a sinner. And I recognize that. that I, there's nothing that I can do that will ever measure up. And there's nothing that I can do that will ever make me right. But you have provided a way that you laid down your life, that you gave it all for me, and all I have to do is receive it, and I am now made righteous before you, that I can lean on your works and not mine. Lord, we are so grateful for that. We thank you that your power is on display, that it's never gone away, that today you are transforming lives. Today, you are making people whole, both spiritually and physically, Lord, that we never have to worry about where you are because we have your word, and your word is true, and it is what guides us, and it is what has displayed all of who you are. And Lord, we are so grateful for that, that we never have to doubt, and we never have to try to figure it out because you have provided all the answers. And so, Lord, we give you glory. And Lord, I just pray that on this day in particular, that our lives exemplify your goodness of who you are and what you've done and the price that you paid, how you took away all the animosity, that you took away death, and we don't have to fear anything because we are made right with you. Lord, I just pray that you are glorified in our lives. And so, Father, we are so grateful for you and all that you've done and continue to do. And, Lord, I thank you that you are transforming us into your image. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week. Have a happy Easter. We'll see you soon.